I don't know about you, but I, I love weddings. Uh, and it's a good thing I love weddings because I'm officiating three weddings between March and June of this year. Uh, I, don't, I don't love weddings because I like wearing suits, obviously, uh, or ties. It's one of the only times. Pretty much I'll marry you and bury you in a suit. And other than Easter, uh, this is what you get. You guys know that. I love weddings, though, because I love being married to Leanne. Oh, thank you. I'm, I was, I was, that was a slow pitch, guys. Come on. Uh, my favorite thing to say at weddings is not, I pronounce you and all that. Uh, that'll be Nash and Thessa's favorite part, and Timothy and Allison, Jackson and Josie. That'll be their favorite part. Uh, my favorite part is earlier in the ceremony, if you attend the weddings, you'll probably hear this three times, because I basically use the same wedding ceremony. But it's in the charge that I give to the gathered family and friends at the wedding. And this is what I say. In addition to your support of their union, and they'd be, you know, like right here, let us allow this joyful celebration to be an encouragement to those of us who are already married, whether it's been one year or 10 years or 50 years. As they exchange their vows, may we be reminded of our vows. As they pledge their commitment to each other, may we be renewed in our commitments. And may the joy of their marriage increase the joy in our marriages. You could call that idea improving your marriage. Not just the make your marriage better. That's not what I mean by improving your marriage, like some sort of a seven steps to a better marriage type of a thing. That's not what we're talking about. But by improving your marriage, I mean renewing and expanding even your understanding of and your commitment to your marriage covenant while observing someone else entering into that covenant. I first came across this phrase of improving in this way, not in relation to marriage, but in relation to baptism, improving your baptism. And interestingly enough, this phrase comes from the Presbyterian Westminster Larger Catechism which is not what any of you expected me to quote today and what we at Risen King Church believe about baptism. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 167 asks this, how is our baptism to be improved by us? And here's their answer. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized, for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith and have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ, and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. That is an awful lot 
of improvement. We're celebrating four baptisms this morning at the end of our gathering. But my sermon on baptism today is by no means for them only. Because I long for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I long for you and for myself. I want us to improve our baptisms. It's for each of us, baptized or not, because in baptism, as a sacrament, we see the gospel displayed if we are looking with eyes of faith. Let's start with this question to try to move our way into understanding baptism. According to the Bible, what is true of humanity? Well, as sinful humans, we are dirty. Uh, Not just that we need a physical bath or haven't washed our hands enough. We are dirty in our sin. We recognize that external image is communicating something spiritual about us. In fact, those who have uh, committed particularly heinous sins, often uh, like somebody who would, who would commit murder, even if they wash their hands, there's that psychological element of like, I, I feel like my hands still have blood on them. Scripture even uses that image. We are unclean. We are unrighteous. And God who is pure, we see ourselves in contrast to that. We are dirty. We are doomed We could intensify this and say we are damned. This speaks of the condemnation that we face because of our sin. We are doomed to face God's eternal judgment, condemned because of our sinfulness. Guilty. Not just that we feel guilty, but guilty as in the sentence by a judge who has all the facts, has considered all of the evidence, and has made a legal declaration. You, me, we are guilty. We are doomed to face God's eternal judgment. And in the midst of all of these things, we are also distant. Distant from God, our creator. From the garden when Adam and Eve hid. We too hide. We run. And then we suffer the consequences of distance from the one that we were created to be in relationship. But our sin has separated us from God. We're separated from him in our disobedience. We're separated from him in our rebellion. When we think of the gospel and we think of baptism, we start here, but then we also need to start at the beginning of the gospel accounts. All four gospel authors... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them emphasize Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist at the beginning of those accounts. Every single one of them. So when you think of the gospel and you think of the story of Jesus, is the, do you always want to include that aspect of baptism? Why is that? Why is it so important? Why do they emphasize Jesus' baptism? Well, let's think about John. John, the Baptist or baptizer, John preached to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, and he called people to repent so that it would be a wide road cleared of obstacles for him to be able to come in and proclaim his message for them to believe in. And those that did repent, confessing or admitting their sins, they were baptized by John to identify themselves with his message and to profess their repentance. I'm going to have a whole... I have like six sermons in this, and we're just going to, so we can talk about John later, okay? So just, I'm going to really try to steer back in. That's what was happening. They were identifying themselves with his message, you must repent, and they were professing their repentance by entering these waters of baptism. Then one day, Jesus comes along. He comes to be baptized by John. 
Maybe there's a line of people coming up, and then Jesus steps forth, and John looks at him and is like, what are, what are you doing here? I've come to be, bap- to be baptized. Why? Right? It was a message of repentance. Well, did Jesus need to repent? John didn't understand. Maybe you don't either. Why would the sinless Son of God need to receive a baptism of repentance when he had no sins to repent of? I think there are two reasons. One, to, as he says, to fulfill all righteousness. John was a prophet of God who had given a command to God's people, be baptized. And so Jesus enters into that and, and submits to this command. There were other things that he needed not do that he did, right? What about the sacrifices that were offered? Like, did Jesus need to offer sacrifice to bring him back into relationship with God? No, but yet he did. He fulfilled the law in all of those ways. But then here's the second reason. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Jesus needed to be baptized to fully identify himself with his dirty, doomed, and distant people. To align himself with us. In other words, we needed that kind of baptism, the baptism of repentance, so Jesus received that baptism. Not because of his need, but because of our need. Then Jesus is baptized and he moves on with his ministry. But then... In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, there's a passage in Mark where he talks about it as well. And I think this, pers- this passage gets it across well. Jesus says this, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, the young ones that are being baptized today, they might be nervous because they're going to get in front of people, or uh, are they really sure that I'll bring them back out of the water? And I will, I promise, I told them all of this. It's not a time for pranks. But Jesus has already been baptized once. Is he nervous about being in front of people? Is he scared of water? No, that's not actually what he's talking about at all. But do you know what baptism Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 12? It's not another water baptism. It's the baptism of his crucifixion. Jesus' baptism at his crucifixion. Have you ever thought about that? Christ was baptized into us on the cross. Baptized into us, fulfilling or, or completing his identification with us that he signified at his water baptism. No, he needed no repentance, but we needed repentance. So he was baptized by John, aligning himself with us. But even that was just something that was pointing forward to the fact that on the cross, Jesus was fully immersed, plunged, identified in every way with his sinful people. Do you remember what we were, what we are like? We are dirty, we are doomed, and we are distant. And those things are exactly what Jesus took on himself. At his baptism, at his crucifixion, on the cross, Christ became dirty. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin. You know, he had no, known no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was made sin for us. He, he entered into our filth, but didn't keep himself distant from it. He actually took the filth of our sin onto himself. Christ became dirty for the first time in all of existence. He, he became sin. 
On the cross, Jesus became dirty. On the cross, Christ became doomed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is sacrifice-type language. And one of my absolute favorite songs puts it, he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. Jesus became sin so that he could become a sacrifice. He bore our sin on himself and then took the punishment that our sins deserved. That, that dooming, that condemnation, that damnation of the wrath of God that you deserve because of your sin, Jesus took on himself. God's right and fair punishment for our sins is death. That is the sentence from our judge. That is our condemnation. That is the judgment that we deserve. But Christ died for our sins. On the cross, Christ became distant from God. Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is not poetic exaggeration. The truly, the Father did forsake his Son on the cross. God did turn his back on the one who had become our sin to bear our condemnation. Christ's baptism on the cross was an immersion into our dirty, doomed, distant state. And that's part one of the gospel. Christ's accomplishment of salvation for us. Becoming dirty, becoming doomed, becoming distant to die for us. Then there's part two of the gospel, which is Christ's application of salvation to us. He accomplished it, and then it's applied to us because through faith in Christ, we who were dirty, doomed, and distant are now purified, pardoned, and placed. We who were dirty in our sins are now purified by the blood of Christ. We were dirty, we are purified. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the Apostle Peter is giving the first sermon that we see at the, uh, of this new covenant community following the resurrection. The, the sermon at Pentecost, he says this, Peter said to them, he's, he's given the truth of the gospel, they want to respond, they say, how should we respond? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness or the cleansing forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, Peter is writing decades after he preached that sermon. He uses an illustration from the Old Testament. Here's another sermon that I don't have time to dig into, but it would be really cool if I did. Peter says, in the days of Noah, right? Noah and the flood, Noah and the ark. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, through the water of what? The water of God's judgment, brought safe through because of God's mercy. Right? God provided a way of salvation for which his people could enter into and pass through the waters of divine judgment without dying. They log that away. 
But he says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, it's like Noah in the ark, not dying in God's judgment. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Peter recognized the fact uh, that entering into water to be washed would be what we would do to remove external dirt. But he knows it's like, but it's not external dirt that's the problem. And it's not external dirt or even sin that is just cleansed by some external water. We need to be cleansed. We need to be cleansed by God's salvation from his own judgment of our sin. And he says, and baptism corresponds to that. See, we are now a purified people not by external water, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We who were doomed to condemnation are now pardoned through union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And water is such a perfect picture of our condemnation, such a perfect picture of of the pardon that we have through God's salvation. It's already talked about that in the flood, right? There's the sinfulness of humanity. God's punishment for that is water, water which brought death because you don't get to be covered in water and live. You will drown, and that's what happened to all of sinful humanity. Then there's another image that Paul uses, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says that the Red Sea was also a form of watery judgment on a sinful people. Right? And those that were with God, those who had faith in him, were able to pass through the water by God's divine deliverance and not experience death. And then those who did not enter those waters by faith, the Egyptians coming after God's people, the waters of judgment closed on them again and they died. We pass through the waters of death and God's judgment safely because God has provided salvation for us through Christ. We need not fear the condemnation, which is not just a baptism or a flooding of water, but a promise of fire. Not just something that's physical death, but actually is eternal spiritual death. We need not fear that condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're no longer condemned. We aren't doomed. We are pardoned because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And again, that happens through this thing that we call a union with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. A a uniting with him so that what is true of him becomes true of us. And the passage, this is sermon number four. I'm trying to kind of cram in here. Romans chapter six. In Romans chapter 6, Paul gives us this definition of of identity with Christ's death. And he says this. He's talking about the fact that we, we as followers of Christ, we can't go on sinning and living in sin. We can't give ourselves to that because we've died to sin. And you might be like, well, when did I die to sin? I'm still alive. And Paul says, well, let me tell you when you died to sin. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Do you not know... That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
Okay, so there's a baptism into death, baptism into burial, baptism into resurrection, where we come into the water and then out of the water with Christ in his death and burial and then resurrection coming out of it. But he makes this association even clearer as he goes on. For, this is verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, Now, earlier he said, we were baptized with him in a death like his. Now he says, we are united with him in a death like his because baptism is a sign of a unification. Baptism is uniting with. That's the point that he's making. We we weren't just baptized into it, but we were united with it. They mean the same thing. Christ and his baptism was united with us in our sinfulness. And us and our baptism are demonstrating we have been united to Christ. Not by by an external sign, but by an inward working of his spirit. Through faith in him, you become one with Jesus. To where when did you die to sin? On the cross. I don't remember being on the cross. We'll read about it in the Gospels. Because by faith, you were in Christ, united with him to where his life was your life, his death, your death, his burial, your burial, and his resurrection is your resurrection. Through faith in Jesus, united with him. And if we are, you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self Our flesh, our desires, our sinful state was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We we were dirty, we are purified, we were doomed, we are pardoned, we were distant, we are placed. Placed in God's family. We who were distant enemies of God are now placed in God's family as adopted children. Love the word placed because we got that phone call in July 2020. The worker said, do you, wanna, do you want these twins? A little boy and a little girl? Can we place them in your family? We said Yes. Because they became part of that. And then there was a ceremony. It took, what, 18 months for us to get to the place where a judge with the authority to do so said, we're going to have a naming ceremony. This is now Peter James Ambler Jr. This is now Liliana Joy Ambler. They have our names. They are part of our family permanently and forever. They are ours. Have you, have you recognized the fact that that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 28? This great commission text that he gives. He sends out his disciples. He says, I have all of this authority, heaven and on earth. It's all been given to me. I want you to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in or into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's not just like a a formula of words that we're supposed to speak, but it's actually an adoption naming ceremony. Bring them into my family. Give them my name because they are part of me through Christ. 
We, we were distant from God. Now we've been placed in his family through faith in Jesus Christ. And baptism points us to all of these things. The need for cleansing forgiveness of sin, the need for pardon from condemnation, and the need that we have and the, the opportunity that we have to be placed in God's family. At his baptism, Christ publicly professed his identification with us sinners. And at our baptism, we publicly profess our identification with him. We've been asking these questions. What is the gospel? What is a sacrament? And this week, what do we believe about the sacrament of baptism? If you weren't here last week, I spent about 55 minutes or so giving a definition of what is a sacrament. So if that causes you to pause or catch your breath, you're welcome to listen to that sermon. So I'm not going to rehash that now. Doesn't mean we're Roman Catholic. Just footnote, listen last week. What do we believe about the sacrament of baptism? I'm a slow learner, but I do learn. So if you got a worship guide today, rather than anybody having to try to take pictures of the screen or furiously jot down or text me afterward on the back in the sermon notes portion of the the bulletin that you have is actually the answer to this question. So you're welcome. So I saw people desperately trying to to shorthand this answer. What do we believe about the sacrament of baptism? Uh, And this is the answer that, that I would give. We believe that baptism is the immersion in water of a believer as a public profession that they have repented of their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. In baptism, as a new covenant sign and seal, God declares that through our union with Christ, he has graciously provided to us forgiveness of sins, salvation from judgment, and new life in his family. Take that Chew on it, I'll read it again, draw out a couple points from it. We believe that baptism is the immersion in water of a believer as a public profession that they have repented of their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. In baptism, as a new covenant sign and seal, God declares that through our union with Christ, he, God, has graciously provided to us forgiveness of sins, salvation from judgment, and new life in his family. I'm going to break down a few pieces about this for us. First, we believe that baptism is immersion into water. Uh, The reasons for this are fairly simple. First, that's what the word means. It means to dip, to plunge, to immerse, to dunk. It never means anything different from that. It never means to pour. It never means to sprinkle or to spritz or to spray. It always has to do with taking something and putting it down into a liquid. It's just what the word means always. Uh, This also is the practice seen in the New Testament. Immersion into water. John the Baptist, or baptizer, lest you think that it was some denominational statement, it wasn't. John the Baptizer went to the Jordan River to baptize people in the river. Not at the river, in the river. And we are told that John chose the place where he baptized because water was plentiful there. Because it needed to be plentiful because they were going to go into it. 
<laughs> so that's just what the texts say about these things. In Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch who believes in Christ and were then told as they were going along the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, hey, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Or, or why don't we go down to the water? And so he stopped the chariot. They both, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water and then he baptized him. Then they came up out of the water. There's a 0% chance that this rich entourage did not have water present and that it wasn't cleaner than whatever pond they found on the side of the road. So it wasn't, they didn't stop because there wasn't water in the chariot. They stopped because baptism is immersion into water. So they needed to stop and get out and go down into the water to be dunked in it and then come back up and out. This is what the picture means. There is never a hint in any New Testament passage that the practice of baptism deviates from immersion. Never. And this is the clearest, fullest picture of the gospel truths that baptism communicates. It wasn't just a light sprinkling or a little bit of pouring. Jesus fully entered into our sinful humanity. Fully plunged himself into the wrath of God. And then was fully removed from that. And we have been plunged fully into him in his death and in his resurrection. The fullest picture of what the gospel communicates by baptism. We believe baptism is immersion into water. We believe baptism is for believers only. It is a command in the passage we already looked at, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It is a command that Christ gives to his church for his disciples. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, baptizing the disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptism is an act of discipleship. It's an act that is rooted in a past experience. Those who come and enter into the water, uh, waters of baptism are saying, I have repented. I have put my trust in Christ. Every instance of baptism that we see in scripture follows the pattern of a person hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and then professing their faith and repentance through baptism. Every single instance of baptism in the New Testament follows this pattern. That is the exclusive pattern of the New Testament. As a sacrament, it is an outward sign of an inward reality, portraying visibly something that has already taken place, what we could say spiritually. So in baptism, God says this, hear this. Again, this was that big piece of last week that in the sacraments, God is speaking to us, that God is saying something and we need to look and listen. God says in baptism, through faith in Christ, you are purified, you are pardoned, you are placed in my family, not because you got into the water, but because of through faith in Christ, you have come into him. But God, once again, has given us this to say, this is what has happened. And in baptism, you say, yes, yes, through faith in Christ, I am purified, pardoned, and placed in God's family. God says, this is true of you, and you say, yes, this is true of me. I receive this promise that God has given through faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is immersion into water. It is for believers only. It is a new covenant sign and seal. 
What do signs do? Not again. Thank you. Signs point. And what do seals do? Seals promise. Signs point and seals promise. This is what we mean by a sign and a seal. A sign. We can imagine so many different instances of sign. Just a big pointing to a truth, pointing to a reality. And specifically in these sacraments, baptism and as we'll see next week in the Lord's Supper, God through his word to his people is is pointing to a gospel truth. It's the gospel truths that I've already tried to point you to today. That every single instance of baptism is doing the same thing. You need cleansing and Christ died for you to be cleansed. Death is the punishment for sin. Christ died for you. He was buried. He rose. And in union with him, you can rise to a new life. You are of your father, the devil, but now there's a naming ceremony. You can be part of God's family. Look to the cross. Look to what Jesus did. That's what baptism cries out. You have a need, and God has met that need. And it points, signs point. Are you looking? And seals promise, that stamp, not just a stamp of approval, a stamp of authenticity, right? That signet ring, that only one copy of it existed. It was on the finger of the king. And if you saw that wax imprint on that document with that indentation on it, you knew it came from the king himself. This is a guarantee from the king of the universe, the God of all creation, and the judge saying that through faith in Christ, you can have pardon. That cleansing is possible and a reality for you through faith in Christ. And if you wonder, this, this has got to be too good to be true. I think if you don't think it's too good to be true, it, maybe it's because I can't get it across well, or maybe you're just not listening, right? Like your filth washed away, your condemnation placed on someone else, and you welcomed into God's family. It's like that is too good to be true, except it has the stamp of guarantee from the finger of God in the seals of the sacraments. This is a promise made, right? Signs point, are you looking? And seals promise, are you listening? Will you look? Will you listen? Will you see what God has given to us, these things? Baptism, through baptism, God points to and promises. God points to and promises that we have received the cleansing forgiveness of our sins, Through baptism, God points to and promises that we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And through baptism, God points to and promises that we we now have been resurrected to a new life, bearing his name as part of his family. Baptized to a new life. It's not the end, it's, it's the beginning. Right? As we enter into Christ, it's not just into his death. Right? It's into a resurrection now and a resurrection in the future. Right? There's a promise, not just for what happened and what is happening, but what will happen. That's like sermon number six. This is what God points to and promises. We, ha- we have a new life. And we can live for his glory. That's why Paul to the Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27 says this, In Christ Jesus, 
You are all sons of God, named, adopted. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You remember when we talked about that in Colossians or when Paul talks about that in Ephesians, right? There's a, and in Romans, there's a putting off and there's a putting on. There's the putting off of, of the sin and the old man and his old man and all of its desires. There's a, there's a stripping of that, a, a, a shedding of who we were in our sinfulness. But we are not left naked in that sense. We, we put on a new life. We have a new robe of ownership as God's name. I don't know how far you can take this illustration. Right? God's name written on that little tag. Who do you belong to? I belong to Jesus. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ so we can go live a life with Christ, from Christ, like Christ, for Christ. It wasn't possible before, but it is possible now. Baptism speaks of all of these things for us. Baptism, okay. Had to get through those parts. I really wanted to preach the first part. And I felt like I needed to preach the second part. Let's bring it all back together that baptism is a glorious gospel picture. And if you think like, oh, I'll just send that clip to all my Presbyterian friends and it's just a mic drop. They've never heard any of these arguments before. They have. It's more complicated than that. But I still believe what I believe based off of scripture. So just as like an asterisk, okay? It's not like, oh, Peter just solved all the problems that people have been arguing about for four and a half hundred years. No, but I still believe what the Bible says on those things, and so should you. And we do believe that, and that's fine. But anyway, back to this. Baptism is a glorious gospel picture. Dirty, doomed, distant, now purified, pardoned, and placed in God's family. I've got a book, Truth We Can Touch, by Tim Chester. We'll have some of these in the bookstore, which you can't access right now because we moved it out. It'll look a little bit different. Uh, the first person who catches me after the gathering can have a free copy that I have on the piano. So that's up to you. You can't do it right now. As he talks about these things, Tim Chester, love, love him as an author. Just highly recommend this book. He says this. This is great because he's talking about baptism as a means of assurance of our salvation. Have you ever thought about that? I didn't. Not really. Because I think I missed that, that means of grace or that, that uh, channel of God's strengthening benefit to me as his child. He points us to this. When doubts arise, we put our faith afresh in Christ who once dripped with the water that expressed his identification with sinners. We put our faith afresh in Christ who was submerged in judgment on our behalf at the cross. We put our faith afresh in Christ, who emerged from judgment at his resurrection. We put our faith afresh in Christ, whose death and resurrection we have enacted in our own baptism. Later on this same page, he says this, When we are afraid, when we feel the weight of our sin, when we feel the power of the enemy, we can say, I'm baptized. In other words, I have received the promise of God. God is for me, and if God is for me, who could be against me? What should you do when you are filled with guilt or fear or doubt? 
Look to the baptism of Jesus and see him dripping with water as a sign that he identifies with you in your sin. And look to your own baptism and see yourself dripping with water as God's promise that you are forgiven in Christ. You have passed through judgment to new life with Christ. That's what I see. My imagination, maybe I have too good of imagination, maybe it's just strange, but as we shift from gospel uh, proclamation to gospel demonstration in the sacraments of baptism, I hope that you have a good imagination. So I love the picture that he gave. So can you imagine Christ dripping wet, having been baptized for us, standing at the head of a people, dripping wet with him, distinguishing themselves from those who are not in Christ. And in your baptism, your baptism, your baptism, your baptism, your baptism, whether it's today or whether it was 50 years ago, it's a joining of that crowd with Christ at the head. I will identify myself with the one who identified himself with me. In baptism, proclaiming, I am Christ's. And Christ is mine. Father, what, what a picture. And it's just a little bit of it. There's so much more that you have said. I want to improve my own baptism. I don't know that I had thought about any of these things. Would I... And I profess that I wanted and was yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe we have and maybe we haven't, but, but your, by your spirit through your word, help us to grow in our understanding and appreciation. And even as, as these are baptized, may we improve our baptism. Um, see ourselves as, as dripping wet with you, identifying with you, united with you, and eager to, to live that out in the newness of life that you have given to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you for baptisms. Amen.